Okay, uh, if you've got a Bible today, it would be a good day to pull it out, open it up, and we're in this series on Joshua, which we've been working through for quite a few weeks, off and on this year. And this morning we are in Joshua chapter 14. Book of Joshua, actually, uh, if you've ever tried to do an outline of a book of the Bible, this is probably the easiest book to do an outline of because it just divides in half very nicely. Chapters, 24 chapters, chapter 1 to 12 and chapters 13 to 24. And chapters 1 to 12, you could call the conquest of the land. Uh, This is the story of God leading Israel into the land of Canaan and leading them in this conquest of the various tribes, people, groups, nations, kingdoms that existed within Canaan. It wasn't just one country like you think of a nation state today. It was a whole lot of city-states. So first 12 chapters, this massive conquest happens. And then in chapter 13 through 24, uh, you could call this the distribution of the land or the allotment of the land or the allocation of the land. Uh, Joshua then divides up the various parts of Canaan to the various tribes of Israel. And uh, really chapters 13 through about 19, it's a system of allocating this piece of land to this tribe, this piece of land to this tribe. We're not going to go through it verse by verse, you'll be pleased to know. Uh, That would be slightly tedious, even for me. But uh, the idea in these chapters, just so you know, is that this tribe gets this, this tribe gets that. And you could get a map and and look at the boundaries and all that kind of stuff. But there is a little narrative in the middle of this whole sequence of events that I want to zero in on in Joshua chapter 14. We'll read it together and then we'll talk about it. Joshua 14, verse 6. Now the people of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, at Kadesh Barnea about you and me? I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land. And I brought him back a report according to my convictions. But the others who went up with me made the hearts of the people melt in fear. I, however, followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. So on that day, Moses swore to me, the land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance and that of your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. Now then, just as the Lord promised, he's kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said this to Moses while Israel moved about in the wilderness. So here I am today. 85 years old. I'm still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised to me that day. You yourself heard then that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified. But the Lord helping me, I will drive them out, just as he said. Then Joshua blessed Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and gave him Hebron, as his inheritance. So Hebron has belonged to Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, ever since, because he followed the Lord, the God of Israel, wholeheartedly. Hebron used to be called Kiriath Abba, after Abba, who was the greatest man among the Anakites. Then the land had rest from war. So what's happening here is, one by one, these tribes of Israel are coming forward to Joshua, little delegation from the tribe of Gad 
and then the tribe of Manasseh, and then the supreme awesome tribe of Reuben comes forward, strongest of all the tribes. And they get their land, and then the tribe of Judah comes forward. And as this delegation from Judah come forward to, to Joshua, one guy steps forward out of the, out of the group to talk with Joshua face to face. The only time in several chapters that you get this kind of dialogue happening. It kind of zooms in on this interaction. And immediately Joshua recognizes this guy. It's Caleb. And Caleb, he would have been a pretty distinct figure within Israel because he was the only, or one of the only two senior citizens in the entire country. Caleb and Joshua. They were the only two guys on superannuation in Israel, the only two guys getting a pension. They were the only two... I mean, imagine if in New Zealand there were only two people over the age of about 60. It'd be an interesting society, wouldn't it? And this is how it was in Israel. The only two guys with a full head of grey hair. Well, I suppose people under 60 could have a full head of grey hair, but these are, these are the only two people their age. And the reason for that goes back to Numbers 13. You don't need to turn there, but this is the story where we first meet Caleb. It's back when Israel was outside Canaan, still in the desert, the wilderness of Sinai, still under Moses' leadership. And they weren't long out of Egypt and slaves. And Moses sends the scouting party into Canaan, 12 spies, 12 scouts. Joshua and Caleb were among them. They go and scout out the land. They look at the territory. Hebron was one of the areas, one of the cities they went and looked at. They bring back vegetation. They bring back some fruits and plants. They are trying to assess what this land is like and what Israel's capabilities were to go in and, and, and take hold of it. This little scouting party comes back and Joshua and Caleb say to Moses, we can do this. We can go and take this land. God's with us. Who can be against us? Yes, the, the, these guys are massive. Yes, the cities are fortified. Yes, it's a huge army, but who cares? That's not the point. God's on our side. We're going to take them down. Because Caleb was so faithful in this, Moses made a promise to him. You don't actually read it in Numbers 13, but later on you, you, you read a bit more about what was going on then. Moses makes a promise to Caleb and he says, because you're so faithful and because you have uh, been so optimistic, so trusting of what God said he would do, when Israel finally goes into the land, that area of Hebron that you scoped out, it's going to be your, yours and your families. That'll be your special territory, not just the tribe of Judah. This will be yours, Caleb. But the rest of the scouts, and you probably know the story, they weren't so keen on this idea. They said, no way, these guys are giants. They made us feel like grasshoppers in the land of Canaan. There's no way we can take them out. And they incited all of Israel against Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb almost lost their lives. Uh, the nation grumbled against them, grumbled against Moses. God was so furious, he said, okay, here's the deal. Not one of you except Joshua and Caleb, none of the rest of you, of your entire generation, are going to set foot in the promised land. None of you. Not even Moses, although that was for another mistake he made later on. But you imagine 38 years passed after that of wandering around in the wilderness and Joshua and Caleb would watch one friend pass away in the desert. Their bones would be gathered up. They'd move on. Then they'd watch another extended family member die. Their bones would be gathered up. And another friend would pass away and another friend and another friend. They would watch one after one. Millions of their colleagues, their generations, fell in the desert until it was only their kids' generation left. It was their sons and daughters. 
And that was the generation that Joshua and Caleb crossed into Canaan with. A generation that hadn't known what it was like in Egypt. They hadn't been slaves. They'd only known the desert life. They'd only known sand and, and, and the manna in the wilderness. And that's what they knew. And that was the group. That was the tribe. They were the people that went into Canaan and fought this long campaign of slowly taking one city after one city after one city. And by the way, that campaign lasted seven years. Seven years it took them to drive out the various people groups, work their way around the southern cities, work their way around the northern cities. didn't happen overnight. Between that last episode we looked at a couple of weeks ago in Joshua 10, where the sun stands still, and this episode of Caleb coming to Joshua, there's about seven years gap in there between Joshua 10 and 14. Long time. And Caleb's waited patiently all of that time. And now finally he's an old man. He's 85 years old. 45 years has passed since that first scouting expedition into Canaan. And now Caleb, here he comes. He's got his walking stick in one hand. You know, he's got his sword in the other. He's a feisty guy. Caleb, he comes up to Joshua and he says, Now it's time for you to make good on that promise that Moses made to me. I've got it written down. Moses signed it. Here it is. It's my contract. It's this piece of land, Hebron. And now it's time for you to make good on that. You're Joshua now leading Israel. And that land, Hebron, rightfully belonged to Caleb and his family. That land of Hebron, the problem with it is that it wasn't unoccupied land. When the dust settles from all of the conquest, one of the things you learn is that not every single people group were actually driven out. There were a few they missed. There were a few that were a bit too fierce. There were a few that perhaps Israel was too afraid of. And interestingly, it seems from what you can read in the text that Hebron, this area promised to Caleb, was one of those areas in Canaan that was actually still occupied. So Canaan, uh, Caleb is not asking just for this piece of land sitting there with a big real estate sign up ready for him to go and pitch his tent on it. He knows that this area is still occupied by the same group of people that occupied it 45 years ago, the Anakites, the same group of people that the spies came back and said, these guys are massive, they're so huge, they make us feel like grasshoppers, they're still there, they have not yet been driven out. And it's interesting to see what Caleb says about this area when he talks about it. Have a look here in Joshua 14, he says, verse 12, you yourself heard then that the Anakites were there and their cities were large. And fortified. I don't know whether that sounds familiar to you, but way back in Numbers 13, when the scouts first came back from the land of Canaan, from exploring it, here's what they said about the land. Verse 28 of Numbers 13. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. Descendants of Anak called the Anakites. Same people. Same language. In other words, nothing's changed. 45 years. The cities are still big. Cities are still fortified. The giants are still there. The Anakites are all there. We've still got the same problem, but look at how Caleb describes it. In Joshua 14, the end of verse 12, he says, But the Lord helping me, I will drive them out. Just as he said. It's the same thing Caleb said back in Numbers 13, 14, where he said, Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will devour them. Their protection's gone, but the Lord's with us. Do not be afraid of them. You see what's happening? Caleb knows 
He's up against all this. Nothing really has changed in Hebron 45 years. Same city, same fortified, same giants, but Caleb's got the same faith. He's got the same trust in God. He hasn't wavered. And he knows after 45 years, God is just as powerful as he was then. He's just as true to his word. His promises haven't failed. His covenant's still intact. I can go and take them. Yes, I've got my walking cane in one hand, but I've got a good sword here. I've got my whano behind me. Let's go and take him down. This is Caleb. If you're still talking like that at 85, you're doing well. You know, really. I mean, what a life of faithfulness. Caleb, 45 years. Just faithfulness, just trusting God. And it seems to me there's such a shortage of that around. You know, there's so many people these days, so many people who start well. But that kind of faithfulness, that kind of longevity, following Christ, the long obedience in the same direction, it just seems so rare. Plenty of people who get off to a great start following Jesus, go forward, pray a prayer, high impact, big emotions. Where are they a few years' time? I was thinking this week of, my youth group days when I was a teenager, the people that I went through youth group with, the people that were leading me as youth group leaders, and a few of them are still walking with God, but a frightening number of them aren't. And you can probably think of similar stories of people you know who once were walking with God, once were faithful, but for whatever reason they fizzled, they just drifted, or maybe crisis came and they, they, just, they just abandoned it. So many people today seem to be unable to really follow through and demonstrate this kind of faithfulness over the long haul. Caleb's story stands in such stark contrast to all that. Such faithfulness, such consistency through his life. And in this passage, there's a great little phrase that gives you an insight into why that was. Why this man was able to endure and persevere so faithfully for so many years. You might have picked it up. It appeared three times in this story in Joshua 14. It's said of Caleb that he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. That's Caleb's legacy. That's who he is in the Bible. That's how he was remembered. Moses was called the, uh, sorry, Abraham, the friend of God. David, the man after God's own heart. Caleb, the one who followed God wholeheartedly. That's his legacy. That's who, it's a wonderfully simple phrase, isn't it? He followed God wholeheartedly. And it causes us back to reflect, what does it mean to have that kind of faith? What does it mean to follow God wholeheartedly? I don't know about you, but when I think about that phrase, my mind instinctively thinks, I've got to do better. I've got to try harder. I've got to work more. I've got to put in more of an effort. I'm a half-hearted Christian. I want to be a whole-hearted Christian. You know, that's where our mind typically goes, isn't it? I've got to, we just feel so guilty. Look at Caleb. What a great guy. So faithful. I'm a mess. I'm rubbish. I'm hopeless. Get depressed. Maybe try a little bit harder. But in the end, we line ourselves up to Caleb and we think, I'm just not good enough. We think that Caleb following God wholeheartedly meant Caleb's the guy that tried harder than everybody else. Caleb's the God that put a little, the guy that put a little bit more effort in than everyone else. And I would suggest that that's because, we think that because most of us live with this view of, of Christian discipleship that has three steps to it. God is good, you're bad, try harder. That's, I think that's how I was conditioned for a lot of years. It's how I thought about following Jesus, the three-step discipleship program. You know, God's good, you're bad, try harder. Get it sorted. Put in more effort, you know. And when you live that way, you know what you call people that live that way, right? Depressed. Yeah, that's, I mean, it is a recipe for depression and frustration because 
All that happens, I mean, if, if I preach that sermon, you know what's going to happen. We're all going to get charged up, fired up. We'll go out of here. Wonderful. Let's try harder. Put in more effort. By next Sunday, we'll all be a mess, depressed, frustrated, defeated, and broken people. Because we crash and burn and then feel worse than we did before we even started. As you go and look at Caleb's life, I genuinely don't think that the biblical author is trying to tell us Caleb's the guy who tried harder. That's what we think he is. But that's not the emphasis of of the text. It's not the emphasis of Caleb's life. Otherwise it would say, Caleb, the guy who tried harder. That's the Avis line, isn't it? We try harder. Caleb, he tried harder. It wasn't his legacy though. I don't think that's... That's that's not the heart of what it is to follow God wholeheartedly. I would suggest a better way of thinking about it. Caleb followed God wholeheartedly in that he was wholeheartedly gripped by God's story. And it changes the emphasis from what Caleb did in his effort, working, trying, putting in more, to what God did in getting a hold of Caleb's life. Caleb simply allowed himself to be consumed by a story bigger than him. He allowed himself to be enveloped by God's agenda, God's program, God's story for his life. It's not, it's not a cute little phrase, this idea of God's story. It's not just a, a cute little lesson. I, I, I genuinely believe Caleb was captured by a story going on around him, going on above him, that orientated his life and led to the kind of faithfulness that you see in Joshua 14. A little detail in the text you might have missed. Caleb didn't grow up in a Jewish home. His father wasn't a Jew. His father was a Kenizzite. We don't really know who the Kenizzites were, but we know they didn't follow Yahweh. They didn't follow God. So at some point in time, interestingly, and we don't really know when, at some point, Caleb's family shifted from following the gods of the Kenizzites to following the God of Abraham. They shifted from what would have been polytheism, many gods, to monotheism, Yahweh, one God, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, your God, the Lord is one. And so, as, as is often the case, when you, when you come into the story, I think from outside, sometimes it's, it's clearer. You know, those of us that have kind of grown, around, grown up around the Christian story, sometimes we get a bit numb to it, do you think? Sometimes we get a bit familiar. It's, it's very, you know, they say, if you want to know what water's like, don't ask a fish. You know, because you're just surrounded by it. And when you grow up in church, that can happen, can't it? But people sometimes that come in from the outside and they have a conversion later in life maybe or late enough that they've had a previous experience in a completely different story. This is Caleb's life. And he came in and he swapped his story and he stopped following these pagan gods and he started following Yahweh. And his family stopped sitting around the dinner table at night telling the stories of those gods and they started telling the story of Yahweh and what he was doing. For Caleb, it was a very simple story didn't have the whole Bible, didn't know Jesus. He just knew that God had promised to bring his people out of Egypt into Canaan. That was really it. There were a whole lot of laws, of course, but the story was about God delivering people out of Egypt, bringing them into Canaan. Caleb was gripped by that story. He held on to it. It consumed him. It apprehended his life to the point where it spilled over in his words, it spilled over in his actions, so that when he went on a scouting mission to Canaan, he saw these giants, he saw these fortified cities, he was so gripped by the story of God and his faithfulness and his promises and what God said he would do, it just came out of him. This faith, it wasn't just Caleb pretending to be bravado, this was Caleb genuinely living the story, 
living out of the story that had gotten a hold of his life. God has said he'll bring us out and he'll lead us in. That's the end of the story. That's how it was for Caleb. This is what gave him faith. He was just living out a particular story. And those other scouts that Caleb went into the land with, they had a story too. They were living out their own narrative. And for them, the story went something like this. God has brought us out of Canaan in order to destroy us. That's actually how it reads. You look in Deuteronomy 1. That's what the other spies had come to believe. God's brought us out, but he has proved himself to be a vindictive and a a cruel and malicious God. He's brought us out only to hand us over to the Canaanites. Now, these spies lived that story out wholeheartedly. It wasn't like they were half-hearted and Caleb was wholehearted. They were all following a story wholeheartedly. It's just that their story didn't go the same way. It wasn't God's story. It was an aberration of the story that they'd made up themselves. This is the thing. It's not The issue is not, are you following God wholeheartedly or are you only following him half-heartedly? We're all following a particular story wholeheartedly. Every one of us. We've all got a story. We're all living out a story wholeheartedly. question is, which story is it? Today, you're living out a particular story. It's as natural to you as the air you breathe. You are living out a story, and that story governs your life. It creates your reality. It provides norms for your behavior and your decision-making, and it gives you a framework within which to live, a sense of where you're going, a sense of where you've come from. Every one of us have a story, a narrative that shapes our life. It's not pop psychology. It's the story that governs our existence. Question is, what is the story? What's the story you're living out? I think for lots of people, lots of Kiwis, maybe particularly Kiwis on the North Shore, we tend to follow the the story, you could call it the Middle New Zealand story. It's the story where we value a decent education in order to get ourselves a stable career, build a strong financial base in the mix there. We have a healthy family, want to give our kids the best possible start in life. Uh, build financial independence so that later in life we open up some lifestyle possibilities, travel, accumulate some toys, financial freedom, these types of things. It's a narrative. That's a story. There's different versions of it, different varieties of it, but that provides an overarching narrative that many, many people are living out wholeheartedly. And it structures your existence, gives you a sense of where you've come from, where you're going. It frames your decision-making. The problem is... If you just try and add God to that story, it doesn't really work. And this is the issue. You can't really come to Joshua 14 and just try and write God in to that story, to that controlling narrative in your life. It's kind of like, have you ever seen that game that's played with theatre sports and uh, you're given, people are given a scene to act out and somewhere in acting out that scene they have to mention a particular word? You know, like you've got to say banana or something. So the scene has nothing to do with bananas. It might be some Western scene or something like that. But the rule is somewhere in acting out the scene, you've got to say banana. And so it's this ridiculous, you know, they're trying desperately to try and figure out a way that we can work banana into the scene, which is actually about a rodeo or something. You know, it's crazy and it makes for fun viewing. That's kind of how it is when you take a controlling narrative that really has little to do with the scriptures and and you just try and squeeze God into it or tack God onto it. This is why so many Christians end up living defeated lives because we just... Get this whole, oh, I've got to try harder. It's got to work harder. And we just, all we end up doing is we, we're still living out the, just the same old middle New Zealand story. We're just now trying to do it morally. Or now we're trying to do it with a bit of church attendance. Or now we're trying to do it 
reading my Bible a bit, but it's not a different story. It's the same story we've always lived. And God's invitation, I think, what Caleb's life models is God doesn't want us to write him into our story. He wants to write us into his. He wants to write us into his narrative. God says, I've got a story that's going on all around you. It'll happen in spite of you, but I'm inviting you to be swept up into this story. Get a sense of what God's story is and make it your controlling narrative. Make it your story. And you say, well, how, how does that work? I mean, we don't have Caleb's story. God's, I don't think, leading us out of Egypt anymore. I've never even been to Egypt. He's probably not leading us into Canaan anymore. What's he doing? Well, I think Caleb's story is not a bad analogy for us because that story kept going and it came to its climax in Jesus. And just as Caleb was on this Exodus journey, so Jesus is now taking us on our own Exodus. Out of somewhere, into somewhere. He's taking us from something. He's taking us to something. He's taking us out of a self-governed, self-determined, self-centered life of alienation from God and just a self-actualized existence into Christ-centered life, Christ-governed, Christ-projecting life of freedom and hope and forgiveness and new identity and new creation from the inside out. That's the Exodus journey. And God's asking each of us to come on that journey. And in the big scheme of things, God is asking us to help others come on that journey, that same Exodus narrative. You can, let, you can take Caleb's Exodus story and make it your own. It just centers around Jesus now. Now that Jesus has come, it's the new Exodus in Christ. It revolves around the cross and it revolves around the empty tomb. Now the question is, is that your story? Or have you tried to just append the God story onto this other narrative that you're really living out wholeheartedly? Following God's story doesn't mean you give up education. It doesn't mean you throw out career. It doesn't mean you don't value family, but it means those things aren't the story. Means those things don't determine the story. They're not the main character. God's the main character. And it's a hard thing and it's a humbling thing to free yourself from being the main character of your own story. It takes a lot of humility to do that, to actually give up the pen, as it were, to God and say, you know, you are writing this. You're the author of life. I want you to be the author of my story. I don't even want to be the main character. I don't even want to be the protagonist of my own narrative. This is your story. But it's a freeing thing when you do it. I've found, even over the last few weeks, with all that's going on with Anna and me, and, and, and in a sense, we kind of feel like we've got this story going on and we don't even know how this is going to end. But it's an amazing thing to give yourself over to the fact this is God's story, not ours, and to realize he's in control of this, not me. I'm not writing this story. I'm not trying to live some self-determined existence. It's God's story. He's writing it. And it frees us, I think, from anxiety, it frees us from the fear of just having to get everything right and get everything sorted out and live our own stuff our own way. And it enables us to surrender to a narrative that's bigger than us, God's story. That's what Caleb did. That's what it means to follow God wholeheartedly. And it starts to work itself out in every area of our life. Once you are apprehended by a particular life story, it's going to come out. You say, oh, I don't really have a story. I don't care about stories. I don't really have a narrative. I'm, I'm disinterested. Then maybe your narrative is the postmodern narrative of despair, disillusionment, and cynicism. That's a story too. It's a narrative. It's a pretty bleak one. But we've all got a story. The question is, which one is it? And which one 
do you want it to be? Because it will come out. You'll live it out wholeheartedly, whatever your story is. And you can flip that around, of course. You could sit down with your last month's bank statement in one hand and your diary in the other and get a pretty good sense pretty quickly of what your story is. Because your story comes out in the way you use your time, in the way you use your resources, in the way you use money, the way you make decisions, who you are in relationships, who you are in your workplace. It's, it's a reflection of your story. So flip it around, start looking at some of those things. You'll get a glimpse pretty quick. What's the story I'm living? And what story do I want it to be? Caleb was a guy who was able to follow God wholeheartedly, and not just for a couple of minutes, but over the course of his life. And he followed the story even when he didn't see the action moving forward. He followed the story even when the plot seemed like it was a mess and he had to wait 38 more years. I mean, I think if anyone had permission to be a grumpy old man, it was probably Caleb. You know, I mean, he was the guy who was optimistic, but he was shouted down by everyone else. Had to spend 38 years in the wilderness when it wasn't his fault. He was the guy who had to spend another seven years fighting the battles when he'd already been promised his land. And yet he's not. He's optimistic and he's faithful because he lived out the story of God, even when he didn't see where it was going. Even when the plot seemed to be going round in circles and the climax wasn't anywhere in sight, he lived out the story faithfully. And he did it because he loved God and he did it because he was absolutely consumed by God's narrative, God's agenda for his life. And Caleb finally comes before Joshua, asks him for this piece of land. And Joshua, as the story ends, Joshua blesses him and he says, go and take Hebron. You can do it. I believe you. You're a feisty old man. Go and take it. And so Caleb does. He gets his family together and he goes and takes down the very giants that so terrified the Israelites 45 years ago. Wonderful sense of historical closure in this story. These ferocious warriors that Caleb had seen all those years ago, finally he has the opportunity to drive them out and he settles down in Hebron with his own family and drives out these giants. They didn't have tombstones in Caleb's day. But if they had, you know what his epitaph would have been. He followed the Lord wholeheartedly. Simple, profound. What is it that our epitaph will be? What is it that will be written on that tombstone? Because you're following something wholeheartedly. You're following some story wholeheartedly today. You are. The question is, are we following God's story wholeheartedly? And can we say with Paul, or at least make it our goal, as Paul said, and I think the same idea was in his mind when he said, it's no longer I that live, but it's Christ that lives in me. If he was using the language I've been using today, he might have said, it's no longer me living my story, but now it's Jesus living out his story in me. Let's make that our legacy. Jesus, we thank you. We give you praise that you have a, an amazing story. You have not uh, left us out of it, but you've invited us into it. Father, help us to discern what it is that we are living, what story it is that our lives are taken hold of, what we are following wholeheartedly. God, we're doing, we're worshipping something, and too often it's not you. Father, come and sweep us up again into your story, I pray. Lord, come and just draw us into this incredible biblical story that is going on around us, the story that rose to its incredible climax in Jesus and now revolves around him. We want our lives to center around that story. And we want to live that story 
day-to-day in our decisions and our finances and our families and our workplaces and our recreational lives. We want to live out the story of God. Father, I pray that you would free those this morning that are stuck in the ways of just trying harder, trying harder, trying harder and never being able to please you. Father, get us off that treadmill, that futile way of living and instead consume us and ignite us with the incredible Jesus story that you've invited us to be a part of. Sweep us up into it, we pray, and stir our hearts with it today. In Jesus' name, amen.